Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. Uh, I will say this, crossing a gentle old man who looked like <laughs> the nicest grandpa any yeah. of us ever had through an interpreter, yeah. I thought it was going <laughs> to blow up in our faces. Thank goodness, knock on, on wood. Right, right. All played yeah. out. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, this is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Everybody is sheltering in place. Uh, Yvonne, how are you doing in uh, in Atlanta? I'm good. I'm good. I'm sheltering in place. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and I wanted to I wanted to go ahead and ask our guests uh, quick, and I'll just I'll go ahead and say that we have Dan Bluen and Jim Kramer from the Simmons Hanley Conroy uh, firm, based out of New York City. Uh, and you can look them up at SimmonsFirm.com. That's SimmonsFirm.com. But uh, Dan and Jim, before I introduce you guys, I mean, the first thing I wanted to hear is we are right in the middle of, uh, I think you guys, at least in New York, are peaking with uh, with COVID-19. Uh, how, is, how are things up in New York right now? Well, hopefully we're peaking. I mean, it seems like the numbers have uh, steadied a little bit after uh horrifying leap in the last couple of days, but uh, it seems like it's chilling out for now uh, and maybe steady. I Hopefully it's going to go down from here, but it's been a crazy month between homeschooling and remote deposition taking and battling to, you know, just explain to the court and the state, you know, that dying clients are an essential business. Yeah. Uh, it's been, it's been tough, but it's, been challenging. It's been eye-opening. You know, personally, it's been great to be with our families a little bit more than we have been in the past. Um, I realize I'm a much better lawyer than I am a teacher. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, I I was saying before I picked I was picking a jury when the news really started breaking, um, and. In fact, two of the defense lawyers lived in New Rochelle, which was really the first quarantined oh, wow. hotspot while that was going on. And we were in downtown New York City picking the jury. And it was the first time in my life where every single juror, whether they were a steam fitter or an investment banker or a hedge fund manager, Barbara Corcoran, the real estate maven, was actually in our in our. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> Everybody was speaking a uniform, you know, universal language about pulmonary disease. And yeah. we were picking a jury in a mesothelioma case. So it was really interesting to, you know, kind of cut to the chase and understand that this is about pain and suffering and difficulty breathing and stuff like that. And everybody knew exactly what I was talking about. It was a, the elephant in the room that was being addressed the whole time. Uh, and then by the time we had what I thought was a very good jury selected, they had to kind of shut everything down. Mm. My fear is that, and, and I don't mean to make light of COVID-19, but my fear, since it looks like the flattening, flattening the curve might actually be working, we might be doing it. My fear is it's going to be like when people, like when you start a diet and you lose a couple pounds. And so you're like, uh, oh, this yeah. is fine. I can cheat here and there. And then before you know, you've gained back like those couple, like, mm -hmm. I just hope everybody continues to take it seriously because it, I'm so happy that, that people are taking it seriously enough for the curve to start flattening, but I just hope people aren't like, okay, we're done now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've been doing a, a, a pretty much a daily phone call with our 
paralegals and associates as part of our department just to check in with them. And a number of them, unlike uh, Dan and myself, they're basically in their apartments in Manhattan or, or in Brooklyn. And, you know, uh, just hearing how they're doing to keep their sanity and, you know, where, where they don't have the freedom even to just stroll around the neighborhood like a lot of right. us do. They basically have to stay in these one bedrooms or, you know, um, with their spouses. I'm sure they're, they're bonding very, very closely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it, it's super, super surreal. But we all hope the same thing, which is that we're doing our part to end it and that the end will be coming sooner rather than later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I agree with you, Dan, in a, in a weird way. Oh, I mean, spe- especially with my immediate family, my, my two daughters and my wife, I mean, we, we've uh, uh, spent just tons of time together, but, uh, but in a weird way, I've, you know, you know spent a lot more time with uh, family across the country uh, all by zoom. Uh, you know, we, we get together uh, on a weekly, if not more basis uh, on zoom and then, and then just re uh, connecting with, uh, with friends from like high school and childhood. I've done very, several zoom calls with them because everybody's at home, you know, so my, why not get on zoom and talk? Right. Uh, speaking of, since we're all in our home, I apologize in advance for the almost certain cameo appearance that my four or seven-year-old will make during this podcast. <laughs> we'll, we'll make sure to ask him some really difficult legal questions and see, see what they come up with. We've had a lot of special guests during our uh, shelter-in-place editions. We've had some dogs, some, yeah. some kids. So that, that's, that'll go well with our theme. Awesome. And then Dan, I can remember when my daughters were your kids' age, and I used to tell them about my cases. And at the end, they would always say, "Daddy, I think you're right." Yeah, uh, there you go. Like, but Perfect now that mock jury, right? <laughs> Wait, they turn into teenagers, and then they're like, "Yeah, Daddy, I don't know." <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, let's introduce you guys so we can uh, we can let everybody know who we're talking to, and uh, and then we'll get talking about this case of uh, Pietro Macaluso versus A.O. Smith. Corp, Burnham LLC, and Peerless Industries LLC. But uh, Dan, we'll start with you. So Dan Bluen is a uh, shareholder at Simmons Hanley Conroy based in New York City. Uh, Dan has been a, a, a lead and co-lead on uh, several multi-million dollar recoveries, including a $190 million recovery in, in a mesothelioma case on behalf of two tradesmen, uh, which I think, I, if I heard right, Dan, uh, resulted in each of them receiving uh, an award of, of over $60 million apiece, which I think uh, might be the highest verdict in, in a mesothelioma case. Um, you uh, have been named to the National Trial Lawyers 40 Under 40, uh, have been named by the uh, National Academy of Personal Injury Attorneys Top 10 Under 40, uh, and you're barred in both New York and Pennsylvania. You've been named in the best lawyers in America from 2018 to the present, a graduate of Georgetown and, uh, and then the Brooklyn Law School, and um, and we're a uh, assistant district attorney. We were talking about this before uh, in King County, which is the Brooklyn area, which uh, uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Scott Ocio Grosso, I think was also at that same uh, same office. So, uh, so Dan, welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Um, and your your partner uh, on the case and 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 uh, with the firm uh, is Jim Kramer, who is a shareholder also at Simmons Hanley Conroy. Uh, and I, I want to make sure that I've told everybody that you can look up both Jim and Dan at SimmonsFirm.com. Uh, but 
but Jim also uh, focuses on mesothelioma and asbestos cases uh, after uh, moving to the Simmons-Hanley-Conroy from handling uh, cosmetic talc cases. Um, and has also been involved in a number of uh, multi-million dollar recoveries, went to uh, Rutgers, uh, got your, your bachelor's at Rutgers, and then got your law degree from Rutgers in 2008. And I was thinking about this, uh, Jim, and so in 2008, I tried a case up in New Brunswick in 2007. So I was there uh, trying a case for like six weeks against Ford Motor Company uh. at the same time, uh, same time you, were, uh, you were in law school. I could have told you all the great places to eat in New Brunswick. Sorry. Well, I, I, I'll tell you, I learned, uh, so I, I, I learned, uh, about the, uh, uh, Clyde's, which is right across the street from the courthouse. And there is everybody, uh, the, all the judges, all the lawyers, everybody goes there every day at the end of trial. Yeah. And, uh, so I definitely had a few drinks there with the, with a few New Jersey judges. Um, Even the bartender helps settle cases at Clyde. <laughs> that's right. right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, and I should say that was also the same time when uh, when Don Imus uh, did his uh, uh, called your basketball team the nappy headed hose and there yeah was yeah protests uh, right in the middle of trial there was we, there was big protests walking down the street uh, so it was exciting times in uh, in New Brunswick. Um, so you've been a super lawyer, a rising star since 2015, um, and you uh, uh, lecture frequently about uh, asbestos and talc litigation around the country and, uh, and, and are also barred in both New York and New Jersey. And then the most important thing, uh, Jim, that I wanted to talk about, and I did warn you of this, is that you also like to do improv comedy. Very, very true. Um, although I don't have the time to do it as much as I used to, I try and at least incorporate those skills uh, in the trial work and the deposition work. Yeah. And sometimes you get a laugh out of a witness, but most of the times you don't. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> I guess it depends on which side they're on. Exactly. Um, I, yeah. I do have a friend who did like improv and, and, and stand up. And I, when he talks about trial, he's, he says that basically like no opening or closing or whatever can ever be scarier than, than just getting up and trying to make a bunch of strangers laugh. So hundred yeah, yeah. <laughs> percent true. The first time I ever did improv, I think I didn't sleep the entire night before. I was so nervous. <laughs> but it all goes well, away. I mean, it's great for trial because you got to think fast on your feet. And, uh, you know, so that's one of the most important aspects of trial. Uh, and, and I will mention, uh, Yvonne, I'll give a shout out to one of our associates at the firm, Peyton Bell. He's done some improv at uh, Dad's Garage in, in Atlanta. So, um, so, uh, so in honor of that, uh, Jim, Yvonne is going to come up with a subject and then you're going to do some improv. Go. That is, definitely, that is definitely not happening. Right. <laughs> 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 um, all right. All right. Well, let's talk about this, uh, this case that you guys tried back in April of 2018. The name of the case is Pietro Macaluso versus A.O. Smith Corp, uh, Burnham LLC and Peerless Industries LLC, all of whom were uh, manufacturers of boilers. And um, essentially, the case was uh, Pietro uh, was born in Italy and, and uh, immigrated uh, to America in uh, the late 60s, I think it was 1969, and around the 70s is what I saw. So he must have been 16 to 18 years old. He was hired by a construction company that uh, when they needed to clear a, a site or do some demolition, he would be the guy who would basically come in and have to remove uh, these boilers. Uh, and and as you all, uh, I saw from your um, your presentations that, um, 
you know, basically use a sledgehammer, uh, you know, a crowbar, things like that. And you're basically just ripping these boilers apart and they are not only covered with as, with uh, asbestos cement or cement that contains asbestos, insulation that has asbestos, and then uh, rope and gasketing that uh, that has asbestos throughout. And um, and you know, in fact, the manufacturers uh, when they were talking about installing these boilers, uh, you know, made it clear that you had to use asbestos uh, when installing these boilers. So so when you get this, uh, you know, Pietro, who's a teenager at the time going in and, and, um, and, you know, uh, ripping these things out. Um, you know, he doesn't have any idea about how dangerous this is, uh, and ends up being exposed to uh, a, a lot of asbestos. And I'll let you guys talk a, a lot more about that as we go on. But, uh, then in 2015, it looked like he developed, uh, mesothelioma and mesothelioma is a lung cancer, um, that is, uh, I think exclusively caused by asbestos, uh, and, uh, and then, uh, sadly passed away in 2016. And so you were representing his family, uh, is speci- specifically his kids, Jackson and Nora Grace, uh, and recovered, um, a total, well, it's the, the pain and suffering for Pietro was a $25 million recovery. Uh, and then on behalf of Jackson, uh, as a survivor, 17 million. And then on behalf of Nora Grace, uh, as a survivor of 18 million for a total compensatory recovery of $60 million. So uh, uh, just a fantastic result uh, in, in a very sad case. And, uh, and at least from what I could tell in the presentations, it looked like uh, just about every aspect of this case was contested by the defense. I mean, even to it, I, I couldn't tell because we were looking at your presentations, but it looked like they were even contesting whether or not he even worked construction in the first place or yep. or was tearing out boilers in the first okay. place. Um, so um, so uh, so great result. And then uh, and then let me see if I can use some deductive reasoning. Um, we didn't get any transcripts for this. And and from what I saw on the jury verdict form, they found in favor of punitive damages. But then there was no. Uh, verdict of punitive damage. So I'm guessing you guys resolved this case pretty quickly after uh, the compensatory verdict. Is that well? Uh, no, we they found recklessness. Okay, uh, we did not uh, have leave at the time. The New York the New York City asbestos litigation has just recently allowed punitive damages back into the the jurisdiction, basically. Um, at the time that this case was filed, we could not seek punitive damages. So what's uh, the, sorry, I'm, uh, that just, what is the purpose of the recklessness finding then? That goes to a joint and several liability issue. Oh, um, okay. So, it, so in each of the defendants was found reckless. Um, and it, it, it goes into the verdict molding at the time after offsets and, and whatnot. Uh, yeah. So in a case where we are trying, where we were pursuing the case against three defendants at trial, the other way to get joint and several liability would have been to have, uh, if someone is more than 50% liable, it kind of shifts over to joint and several liability. But since there were three and the testimony was such that he was exposed to A.O. Smith, Peerless, and Burnham, amongst a few other boilers who had resolved before trial um, and one during jury selection that we'll talk about. But um but we couldn't really go for 51%. So we got recklessness onto the verdict sheet uh, and they were all found reckless. 
So, so yeah, because I noticed that there was an apportionment part of the verdict form where each uh, A.O. Smith, Burnham, and Peerless were each found 25% responsible, uh, and then various others were found responsible that added up to 100%. But uh, so, but that's only if they don't find recklessness that you would then then they would be responsible for their 25%. More. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Okay. It, it'll, at the end of the day, once uh, the verdict is finally molded, if recklessness hadn't been uh, part of it, everyone would have just been on the hook for their exact percentage. And then there would be a subtraction of any pre-trial settlements. And then the, the verdict gets molded that way. But because of the recklessness, it basically gets had them on the hook for a third piece. Okay. Okay. And just to, uh, to follow up on that, even though it looked like things resolved then, we went through a very lengthy post-trial motion practice, and it finally went up to the first department uh, appellate division in New York. And uh, I think we got our decision on that. When was that? Maybe a little over a year ago. And unfortunately, the law in New York uh, on remitter uh, substantially knocked the verdict oh. down. Uh, it still ended up being a, a huge success for the client and the, you know, the children at the end of the day. But that's just the reality of, of the case yeah. in New York. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh, man. We are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers. We're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers. And plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. So, you know, we've talked about this before on the show, and this is something that's that's foreign to Yvonne and I. Um, you know, when, whenever a verdict comes out in, in New York, 
I, I see that the the jury has to do things like talk about how much time they're they're compensating for, and then you guys are using this this term molding the verdict. So w- when we say a total of sixty million dollars, wh- how how is that all broken down as far as that after you mold the verdict, as you say? Well, generally speaking. Um, if, say you have a verdict for $10 and, and there's two defendants for, and Jim, I'm going to mess this up. So correct me when I mess it up, but you have, and, and two defendants at trial are held for 40% each. So you have 80%. So they, you'd think that they owe $8. Um, so that's not the case. If you have collected more than $2 from resolving defendants, it's all taken off the top and the defendants have to pay whichever is less than the percentage of the verdict or from the set-offs in dollar amounts. So there's a, it's, it's basically a statutory rule that protects the interests of the defendant from any unintended double dipping. Okay. And is that a, is that a feature of the, the asbestos division specifically, or is that how it works in any kind of case? All of New York law, it's, it's, uh, it's stated in the general obligations law in New York okay. to, just as Dan said, to prevent any sort of double recovery from the plaintiffs, um, but it would apply to any case where there's a verdict. Okay. And then the purpose for, uh, like, for instance, um, when I think they were finding for Nora Grace, they said that they wanted it to, uh, it was expected to compensate for 21 years or something like that. What's the purpose of finding that? Well, in the case of the the damages for the children, you know, we were really uh, exploring some almost new legal ground with that. Well, there's there's plenty of uh, legal precedent talking about uh, damages to the children of, of people who died through wrongful death. In this case, though, we had had to ask the jury, you know, how long would uh, the guidance and emotional, physical, and moral support of the parent be intended to uh, to go throughout this person's life? And I think it go. It, it, is that am I right, Dan? It went yeah. through that amount of time. Right. Yeah. And what what we talked about at closing was, you know, this isn't an Uber bill for driving your kid to baseball practice. This is, you know, what the guidance and support of a parent would be worth. Um, and it's, and it doesn't end when somebody becomes the age of majority at 18 years old. It's, you know, I, I think we even said, you know, when I look up in the morning and call my father, you know, I'm 43 years old and I need guidance from him even now. And, uh, and Jessica Laborde, uh, who is Pietro Macaluso's ex-wife and the mother of his kids, she testified as to what he was as a father and what he did for them. And the jury saw that even for these, you know, preteen adolescent kids, that the guidance that he was going to give them was going to go for a heck of a lot longer than four or five more years. Right. And uh, one of the things that we're allowed or that the court is allowed to take judicial notice of are the expected life, uh, the life expectancy tables of when an average person uh, might live to be. And in this case, since Pietro died in his I think it was his mid 50s, um, the court recognized that he could feasibly live for, uh, you know, over two decades more. Okay, And he took notice of that. And that's what the jury was allowed to consider. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was going to point that out that he, when he passed away, he was 56 years old. So uh, yeah. still a very young man and, um, you know, and still, uh, obviously very active with his kids, uh, who he seemed like he had just a, a fantastic relationship with, um, t- talk a little, I-, I wanted to talk to you guys about, um, you know, how, how you go about putting together an asbestos case, because from my standpoint, it, it's different than your average, uh, you know, injury case in that, you, you know, you get very involved into this idea of product identification and, and, and identifying, you know, whose asbestos uh, they were exposed to. And, you know, and then, and then this issue, you know, how, how contentious it was over whether or not uh, Pietro was even, uh, you know, demolishing boilers in the first place. Um, just, just talk about the, you know, from the general aspect of putting together an asbestos case and then, then specific to this case. Sure. Yeah. The, the, in an asbestos case, every story for the most part, uh, is a life story. It, it's not about a car accident in a moment in time. It's not about even a, a, a pharmaceutical case that it's like for a period of time, I was taking this drug to deal with whatever issue. Um, typically most clients have a lifetime of experience working with a relatively close universe of specific products. Electricians work with wire and carpenters work with joint compound or something like that. Uh, you know, somebody works for a powerhouse in a power company, a power generating company for his entire career, or, you know, in, in the talc situation, you know, a mother uh, uses, you know, talc products on her children and then uses them on herself for her whole life. Uh, in this case, it was, it was a little trickier, frankly, because uh, Pietro, uh, you know, worked as a grunt as a kid in Brooklyn, um, you, know, you know, immigrant kid, immigrant parents, uh, you know, basically went to work as a teenager for uh, a local big shot by the name of Bruno Frustacci, who will tell you a lot more about in a little yeah. while. It's a good story. <laughs> but, um, but so I went out to Sacramento uh, where he lived. He dropped his whole life. He actually lived down in Georgia for a while and in Jacksonville. Uh, he dropped his whole life when his ex-wife at the time moved to California uh, and took a job in the University of California system. Uh, and he changed everything and moved out there. And he was driving an Uber actually uh, and just kind of getting by. He he and he probably previously, excuse me, been a small business owner, pretty successful guy in uh, in the tech world, uh, you know, doing office support that type of thing. But he dropped everything and moved out to California to be with his kids and to be a full time dad, and lived in a little place just around the corner from his ex wife and kids, uh, and started a new relationship with Mary Murphy Claggett, who was the executrix in the, and testified in this case as well. Uh, he was very much in love with her and she lived down in San Diego. So it was a long distance relationship. But so anyways, I went out there and sat down with him and just kind of said, Pietro, we got to start day one. You know, what did your dad do for a living when you still lived in Italy? Because as you said before, Steve, when you have mesothelioma, the only known cause outside of irrelevant things like therapeutic radiation or Aryanite rock in Turkey, um, the only known cause is mesothel- of mesothelioma is asbestos exposure. So I went down day by day, you know, every home he ever lived in, every school he ever attended, uh, 
And we discovered that, yeah, when he was 16 years old, he spent a few years ripping out boilers, tearing these things apart and doing other grunt work in the, in these old townhouses in Brooklyn, uh, for Frustachi construction. Uh, and once that was figured out, we had to sit down and, you know, and he dug hard. He would call me at two o'clock in the afternoon and say, Oh my God, I just was taking a nap because I feel terrible. And I just remembered seeing this boiler that was made by so-and-so and, you know, not to get into what we discussed all the time, but you know, it, the, the aha moments that would come and I'd say, okay, well then you're onto something Pietro. And so the next thing, you know, uh, he had, he had very good recollection as to what he did, uh, and, and excellent descriptions of the type of work that he did that checked out with what industrial hygienists would talk about and what hundreds, if not thousands of other clients have talked about in exposure settings of how he was exposed. Um, and so the defendant, all three of the defendants really had a bunch of different excuses and defenses and they challenged every aspect of it because they could, they saw an opening to go after his credibility. And it was upsetting really, because I met him many times. I had been out to California, both in Sacramento and San Diego to be with him because he moved down to San Diego to be with Mary when he got particularly sick. Um, and this was not a bad father who wasn't making child support payments. This was a guy who did everything for his kids. Uh, he, you know, they made issues about his drug use that they wanted to show to the jury. It turned out that he was treating for his cancer by smoking marijuana, which is totally legal in California. Even at the time he had a medical marijuana card, but they wanted to exclude that and bring in his putting his interests above that of society by smoking marijuana and things like that. I mean, every single aspect of the case was battled. Um, in particular, um, and Jim, you can jump in whenever you want, but all three defendants really had three big defenses that they started on during jury selection and really focused on uh, throughout the whole case. Uh, the First was uh, Peerless had a guy by the name of Delno Malzon. He's an industrial hygienist and a defense expert that uh, for years and years, they've been waving this report that Dr. or Mr. Malzon did about the disassemble of Peerless boilers. Uh, And lo and behold, his work showed that it did not create any appreciable amounts of dust and somebody could be doing work on these boilers for their entire life and never get above the OSHA suggested uh, permissible exposure level. Level. I'm just going to jump in real quick, Dan. Sure. Meant that because during this trial, kind of like Dan was saying, the amount of paper flying oh. back and forth between us and these three defendants and them to the judge was staggering. We were battling motions. And I'm, this is not exaggeration on a nightly basis on yeah. every aspect of the case. And, you know, Dan was telling the story of, you know, how this kind of all goes down. You know, it's detective work in I know your listeners have heard a couple cases having to do with mesothelioma in the past, going back decades to discover where this exposure might have occurred. 
you know, is always step one. And in this case, what Pietro walked the jury through and his, in his depositions walked us through when we met with him was the fact that this wasn't a, a situation where you gently take a, a boiler apart and then multiple people gently just rock it out of a, of a basement. Right. Sledgehammers, crowbars. You're not going to keep these things. You're never going to use them again. So you use as much force as possible after the, the actual plumbers come in to disassemble them to get them into chunks small enough to carry them out to the waste facility or a wheelbarrow up the, you know, up the stairs of these basements. So it's, and then you sweep up afterwards. So it's a really violent process. And this Malzahn study, um, which we saw the video of, which purported to show that you would have the lightest possible exposure to a peerless boiler, to the gaskets and such, involved a, a guy in a full body suit, I was just thinking that, yes. Walking <laughs> around, taking his time around this this boiler. Every couple seconds, he'd give it a little tap with a little ball-peen hammer, walk around, look again, <laughs> tap, tap, tap. Kept on glancing at the camera. Right, yeah, exactly. right. <laughs> and, you know, and we were successful in keeping the entire thing out um, by basically saying, which is true under New York law, that you can't introduce a study to the jury that doesn't substantially simulate what the evidence in the case shows. And the two were so far apart that it just, the only thing it could have done was possibly prejudiced us and it had zero probative value. So uh, Judge Mendez, who oversaw the case, thankfully kept it out, but that was just one of the battles. Sorry to interrupt in. And that, and that was, I, was, I was getting there, thank you. The, the, the video had never been produced by Peerless before. And so to even get to that point, they had been using the results of the study for over a decade um, uh, to defend the cases. And they frequently got out of cases much earlier and much cheaper than some of their, their brethren would because of this study. Uh, and before we even got to jury selection, we battled and battled and battled to get the video. And it was quite obvious to us what we were going to see once we got it, because Peerless fought so hard to keep the video from being right. produced. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was incredible. There was a, there was a glare on the plexiglass that you couldn't quite see the boiler and, uh, the, 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 the people taking it apart looked like artisans and not 16 year olds doing grunt work. That's what I I was just thinking about that. Like if anybody who, if you told a group of 16 to 18 year olds, go destroy this thing over here or go rip (laughs) it out and just let them go. I mean, not one of them is going to sit there and try and take it apart carefully. I mean, they're going to, they're going to rip the hell out of it. Well, we really, once we got the video, we couldn't lose really, because if they were, if they were bold enough to put this witness up to talk about the results of the study, we would have been able to, cross him with the video. Yeah, that's what I was uh, going to ask. Were you tempted to actually show the video because it was so ridiculous? We had yeah. this conversation, Dan, I think many, many times mm-hmm. over what value, what would have been more valuable? The doing that awesome cross and having, you know, in our minds, the jury just throwing their pads right. down on the ground. <laughs> or not run the risk at all, keep the whole thing out and totally handcuff them. And uh, we decided on the, on the ladder. And, um, and I, obviously, I think it worked out. I think both of them would have worked out, but yeah, yeah. My my theory, my guiding theory is always kind of if you can keep it at zero and not let the defense expert score any points at all, keep it that way because your experts will score the points that you need to win the case. 
And so we decided at that point, although I think it would have been a heck of a lot more fun, but as, <laughs> right. as we'll get, we had, we had plenty of opportunities for fun in this case. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of their other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is ltsatlanta.com, legal technology services, uh, give them a try. Well, Dan, I didn't want to take you off track. You had mentioned three big defenses. That was the one by Peerless. What were the other? What were the other two? Well, the other one uh, was uh, the in the work up to the case, Mr. Macaluso testified about A.O. Smith boilers many, many, many times. A.O. Smith boilers, and he said that they made like Peerless and Burnham, they made cast iron sectional boilers, uh, which are for your listeners just basically. A boiler can be either a packaged boiler, which is kind of like what you would assume would be in somebody's basement, just a big big metal box where all the pieces come packaged and then they get delivered to somebody's house. But cast iron sectional boilers are individual sections of cast iron that are 50 to 90 pounds typically, and they're kept together with asbestos rope gasketing. And depending on the needs of a home or a commercial center to be heated, you add on additional sections to get the right strength of the boiler to produce the right amount of heat. Uh, and so he said A.O. Smith cast iron sectional boilers over and over again. And uh, the defense attorney for A.O. Smith came in and said, well, you know, it sounds to me like he got the name wrong because there was another company called H.B. Smith that made cast iron sectional boilers. And A.O. Smith only made uh, packaged boilers and they made a very special type of packaged boiler that even though it had asbestos, it didn't need external asbestos insulation like the cast iron sectional boiler would because of these particular louvers that change the airflow on the boiler. And there was a lot of talk about this. Uh, and Jim, I don't know if you want to take over on how that 
whole H.B. Smith defense came up. Yeah, you know, that it, I think for this particular defendant, A.O. Smith, that's been there uh, because they claim they never made this type of boiler. Their defense for decades has been the fact that it must have been H.B. Smith, even though our, 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 uh, our person never said it. So they, they were going to go so far as to have the owner of H.B. Smith come in and testify. And one of these nightly motions that we dealt with for a long, long time was how can they be allowed to bring in this party that wasn't in the case that uh, while our client was alive, they never cross-examined him to say, sir, even though you've been saying A.O. Smith the entire time, did you really mean H.B. Smith? They never confronted him with this. Instead, they were just going to bring someone in to introduce this completely prejudicial theory that factually we can't contest because our guy, unfortunately, had passed away. So after battling this out for a long time, the H.B. Smith president is in the hallway. He's getting ready to be called in when finally we convinced the judge this just can't happen this way. And he agreed with us and sent Mr. H.B. Smith on his way, uh, leaving A.O. Smith really with the defense of, well, you know, maybe maybe that's the case. They couldn't introduce it to the jury anymore. They couldn't bring their, their tried and true H.B. Smith defense in. So they had to go with the theory that, well, we just didn't make uh, the boiler that your guy described. And we called his, the corporate representative of A.O. Smith to testify, and I confronted him with their own documents from uh, the 50s showing that, lo and behold, A.O. Smith made a sectional boiler <laughs> that required insulation, and it said A.O. Smith very clearly on the cover in the front. And once the jury saw this, after listening to this, these defenses, and they, and they saw, wait a minute, what are we really talking about here? I think everything crumbled for them. Right. Um, but it was, it was very interesting. The things that play out um, when the ju- that the jury never even has a chance to see all these defenses, all these legal arguments, all these you know uh, irrelevancies that thankfully were, were rightfully kept out. Um, and then you know obviously they they brought that up on the appeal, and the appellate division agreed none of this should have come in, and our judge did the right thing by keeping it out. Yeah. So so and it was a it was a long battle to do that. Um, in fact. They originally were allowed to subpoena, the judge signed the subpoena for the H.B. Smith corporate rep to come down because in the papers, A.O. Smith said that Mr. Macaluso only called the boilers Smith boilers. Uh, When we finally got the judge to look, it turned out that Pietro named A.O. Smith specifically like 35 times in the deposition. Uh, Never said the word Smith without the words A.O. in front of it, actually. So... It was a, it was, was, the judge did the right thing for sure. Yeah. Now the third defense. And most dramatic. (laughs) Leading up, burying the lead is, uh, is uh, Burnham has been uh, a big company and a big boiler manufacturer and very present in the asbestos litigation. Uh, Usually doesn't have these kind of tried and true defenses that Peerless and A.O. Smith have. But in the lead up to the case, uh, actually, Burnham was, you talked about that $190 million verdict that I had a few years back with, uh, uh, that, that was actually five plaintiffs, but oh, okay. two, of the, the two of the plaintiffs got $60 million in, in the verdict. Um, okay. But Burnham was in that case as well. Uh, and since that case, they had changed their corporate representative. They kind of retired their former witness that would come in and they changed a lot of their defenses. But in this case, 
they went out and they found Bruno Frustacci, who was Pietro's employer. And Mr. Frustacci is a very successful guy that lives in Brooklyn still, or now he lives in Staten Island, but his, his office was in Brooklyn. And uh, they found him, they talked to him, and then they sued him. Uh, they, they, they third-partied him in as the employer with the exposures starting after OSHA. They sued him for knowingly putting Pietro in the zone of risk. And there's nothing they could have done regarding uh, warning on their boilers if, P if Mr. Frustacci was sending him in. So this the story gets much longer, but they then approached him. They dropped the lawsuit and had Mr. Frustacci sign an affidavit in, written in English that said, you know, Pietro Macaluso might have worked for me every once in a while. He definitely didn't work as long as he said he worked. And he definitely, definitely, definitely didn't do any work on boilers. And further, we didn't even hire any plumbers ever uh, to take apart boilers for kids to come out and rip out later on. So we went to go do his deposition after he, after he signed that. And I was loaded for bear in the deposition because I wanted to know why they dropped the lawsuit and if that was a tit for tat for the affidavit being signed for the lawsuit but they did drop the lawsuit and then i went to depose mr frustacci and i got to his office he's a very nice man um he doesn't speak a word of english and i said my very first question was well where was the interpreter when you signed the affidavit and he said i don't know i just they just they just put the thing in front of me and i signed it um so, so I had a strident deposition with him, uh, where Burnham, you know, kept on pushing and, and, and had him testify. He told me that he was an honest man. He even tells his wife about his gumat, uh, which is an Italian <laughs> term for mistress. Um, if you've so, seen the Sopranos, you know, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so, so Burnham, but Burnham, you know, when the judge would say, you know, what are you guys working on a resolution? Counsel for Burnham uh, would say, no, and I can give you two words why we won't. And the judge said, why is that? What are those two words? And they would say, Bruno Frustacci. So, uh, so Jim crossed Bruno when he finally came in to testify for the defendants. So I'll let, I'll let Jim kind of tell the rest of the story. Cause right. and, and that was a battle very quickly. They weren't going to bring him. Um, they claimed that he had heart problems. Oh, yeah. It would have been super <laughs> stressful. We asked them to bring in proof of that. And the proof was, um, a medical, a heart issue he had like 16 years before, um, that they were afraid would flare up. He the judge finally gets him to come in. And um, one of the main defenses shared by these defendants was our client's social security records, which did not show that he worked there for the 10 years that he remembered working there. So they brought in Bruno. They did a very quick uh, direct of him. Do you remember him? Yes, he was the neighbor, all through an interpreter. Um, and, you know, we didn't, you know, what Bruno said was, look, you know, we didn't do this type of work. You know, a licensed plumber would have had to do the disconnecting. Legally, we wouldn't have been able to do it. I don't remember him doing it through this entire time. And, you know, I don't think he worked there for, he worked for me, but definitely not as long 
as he claimed. On cross-examination, we really dug into the intricacies of his memory. And what we got him to admit was that he, uh, through his company, was really not in Brooklyn uh, for much of the week during this portion of Pietro's life. They had a, a contract up at West Point where he spent the majority of his time. His business partner, however, which we discovered by digging in, just doing some, some legal research, had been cited by uh, the New York, I think, uh, Department, Department of Labor, of Labor. Yeah. for um, cooking the books and not reporting oh, wow. uh, the amount of uh, time that his employees were, were uh, actually working. So once that came in, and it came in through a written uh, decision, appellate decision, I believe, um, that we were allowed to show the jury and confront him with, Fristacci basically gave it up. He said, look, my, you know, my, it, it wasn't me. My law partner was a deceptive guy. And it, everything you're saying is true. And once again, like when the jury has the opportunity to kind of see both sides, even as it slowly and dramatically plays out, yeah. what they got to hear was that everything that Pietro said was 100% true. His 16-year-old memory was 100% accurate. Yes, he was working for them. And there was a reason why he, his name wasn't on the social security records is because he was getting paid cash under the table, like he always claimed. And this business partner for Stachi was never informing uh, the people he should have been informing about who was working for him for how long and how much he was paying them. So in fact, I will say this crossing a gentle old man who looked like <laughs> the nicest grandpa any yeah. of us ever had through an interpreter. I thought it was going to blow up in our faces. Thank goodness, knock on on wood. Right, right. Played yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing. We we I think at summation we didn't ask Mr. Prestacci to do any math, but at summation in 1976, Pietro's uh, social security records worked out to exactly one thousand dollars paid to him by Prestacci Construction, and uh, he had testified that he was paid minimum wage and. And Bruno confirmed that he was paid minimum wage. And it turned out that minimum wage in 1976, it was impossible to even out on an hourly rate to right. $1,000. <laughs> so it, it, it became it became painfully obvious that uh, that exact Caparato is the name of the partner, that what he was doing was so obvious that it was recorded by the U.S. Department of Labor and the New York State Department of Labor. It was wow. very moving. Yeah. Well, and it, it goes back to what we talk about a lot on the podcast is, is this issue of credibility at trial. I mean, if you're going to put something out there that you can't support uh, or is going to blow up in your face, I mean, on, on either side, I mean, um, you know, it, it just makes it, you know, once the jury sees that the defense is willing to lie to them and, and, and just, you know, blatantly lie to them, uh, it makes it very difficult for the defense at that point. Mm -hmm. The other thing that shocks me about um, when attorneys do it and whether it's intentional or not, but when they make representations about, um, you know, that Pietro always said Smith, that he never said A.S. Right. Smith or, or whatever, when you're arguing that to a judge and that mm -hmm. eventually turns out to not be true, losing that credibility with the judge is so important oh, yeah. at trial. I mean, it's just like arguing motions in limine and stuff. If the judge feels like you have said things before that turned out to not be accurate you just don't want to be in that situation when you're at trial and need you know rulings on the fly all the time 
That's true. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, especially in the New York City asbestos litigation, we we confront and go against the same defense lawyers over and over and over again. And, you know, I want to reiterate very clearly, we have nothing but respect for them and they're, they're upstanding lawyers. But 100%. sometimes in the advocacy, or it might even just be misreading these things, you know, the way they presented the facts just wasn't the way that the testimony shook out. Yeah. But your point is well taken, Vaughn, which is once a judge sees that and sees how it plays out, you're already starting way, way behind and you've lost that initial credibility, whether it was intentional or not. Right. You know, you're, you're basically way, way behind the eight ball. Yeah. And I think it's also worth, worth mentioning that while the attorneys uh, for the three defendants were trying this case, it was quite evident that they were doing so and taking certain defense tactics right. at the direction of the carrier um, that, that was involved, uh, that touched all three cases. Um, and, and their corporate represent the insurance company's corporate representatives would be in the room as well, kind of watching and yeah, I, I'm just following the, orders. Yeah. And that, that's what, that's one thing I've seen, you know, in, in, in you, you know, you know, you know, we always talk about guarding your representation, I mean, guarding your reputation, you know, um, and never doing anything to put it at risk. Um, but you know, these clients in these cases are such big clients for these defense firms. Um, you know, to lose that business is going to be a, a, a huge blow to them. So when they ask you to do something, uh, you know, there's a big incentive for, for people to take that risk and go ahead and do it. Even, even at the risk of blowing their credibility in front of the judge. Right. 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 Um, so I want I wanted to talk a little bit. Um, well, two things. Um, I did notice in your in your closing you had a slide that that uh, had something about the defense lawyers. So I was wondering what that was about. Would, were you uh, basically just showing how many lawyers the defense had on the other side? Of, you know how much money they were putting into defending these. What what was the? Uh, um, I, go ahead, Dan. I, I think it was about the identification, uh, the product okay. identification that that um that all of these people cross-examined him um all of these people were present in in picking his story apart um and all of what they did couldn't amount to all, all all that they did couldn't amount to poking enough holes in his story to make him an incredible witness um okay. i think that i think that that was what it was we it's a big no-no to talk about their unlimited resources. Um, okay. okay. We, we did get into it. This was funny. Um, Jim was crossing the, uh, the corporate representative for AO Smith. And we touched on this a little bit and he had seen in a deposition that the guy's name is Brad Plank, the corporate rep. And he said, you know, you prepared a lot to testify as the corporate rep for AO Smith, didn't you? And he said, yes. And he goes, you, in fact, went to witness school to testify <laughs> and the rep Freo Smith turned red and he said, yes, I did. And he goes, did you stay in a dorm? <laughs> <laughs> and the guy said, yes, I did. And, and he goes, did, did they give you a diploma? <laughs> and at this point I'm dying laughing. I mean, talk about improv in court. I'm yeah. dying laughing at the table. And the guy said, yeah, they actually did give me a diploma. <laughs> and, and, and then Jim looks at me and I just like kind of give the signal, like keep going, keep going. And he goes, 
did you put it on the wall of your office, that diploma? <laughs> the guy's like, no, I would never do anything like that. <laughs> so, Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Uh, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. Well, I, I did want to talk about, so, you know, this, uh, I noticed in a lot of your slides in, in the in closing, uh, sort of a later issue because you, you had to hit the issue of product identification, the asbestos they had, how they knew asbestos was, uh, you know, was on the product. But then this sort of idea of knowledge of, his, uh, of how dangerous asbestos is. And I guess I'm just wondering, in a case, you know, where you're, I, I assume it's pretty well known to most juries and, you know, to everybody that asbestos is very dangerous. Um, how much of an issue does that become improving up their knowledge of the danger, you know, at the time, that, that, that type of evidence? Uh, it, it becomes a central part of the, of the, uh, the trial, actually. So, you know, under the law, we have to show that they knew or should have known about the danger. And then for, in order to get them uh, to be held reckless, you have to show that they knew of the danger, but then still almost to the point of intentionally disregarded it um, and acted with the way they did anyway. So uh, Dan put on our uh, expert historian, uh, Dr. Gerald Markowitz from John Jay College in, in, in Manhattan, to, who has published and written extensively on numerous types of toxins including asbestos with his, um, his writing partner, Dr. David Rosner from Columbia University. And he took the jury through the entire history of when uh, the knowledge of the hazards of asbestos were knowable. And uh, it, it's a fascinating part of the trial because the, the jury gets to hear um, just when the companies were on notice. 
And notice comes in many different ways. It comes through the public literature. It also comes through the industry groups that these defendants belong to and the meetings that these groups were having discussing these hazards and talking about um, the, the, the raw numbers of, uh, you know, what, what, how much particulate in the air is going to get someone sick, um, right down to, you know, meetings and, and how this kind of influenced uh, federal regulation like OSHA to determine, you know, how much uh, asbestos a worker can be exposed to in a given day. Um, so all this is coming out. And, you know, and one thing that the jury also then got the chance to hear was that for all three of these defendants, they were receiving uh, asbestos containing uh, components of their boilers from a company called Johns Manville, mm -hmm. who was a major manufacturer of asbestos products all the way up into the 80s. And after a certain period of time, even Johns Manville was supplying warnings to their customers. And that then comes into evidence. The fact that after a certain year, these defendants couldn't claim that they just didn't know because they were actually getting warnings from their product manufacturer and throwing them away. So that all came in too. But um, it's actually during this part of the trial that I th when, when the, uh, the jury gets to hear, oh, they've known about this for 30 years and, or they were still manufacturing this stuff into the 80s or they weren't going back and recalling stuff they knew was in these basements from the 40s on is when they really put all the pieces together, but also when an emotional trigger, I think, occurs in a lot of the jurors when they think, wait a minute, like what, what are these companies really doing? And even though punitives weren't part of this and they didn't give us a punitive verdict, as far as that recklessness stage to say like, look, right. they knew about this stuff and they acted a certain way anyway. I yeah, and that's I, the key part. I thought one of the uh, uh, key pieces of evidence was that, that when they were handling the material in their own factories, they were using uh, masks and, and, and breathers. Uh, right. And then of course, didn't give any warnings to the consumers or the people who are putting them into their homes. Exactly. Um, I, re I really liked in the, in the opening, it just related to this issue of, of what do the jurors know? What do they not know about asbestos and mesothelioma? Um, and I know y'all do a lot of um, asbestos work. So maybe this is something that you just know. I, f I feel like there were a lot of really good slides, really good visuals that just kind of stuck in my mind as I was going through your opening without hearing, obviously, what you guys were saying while the slides were up. Um, that really did a good job of explaining um, what asbestos exposure is like for the people who are actually being exposed. Like you've got one where there's a slide where it says like no onion effect or something like that, but it's got pictures of right. people. <clears throat> it's, it's just these visuals that really stick in your mind to help, um, explain the concept of there's no, there was no reason Pietro would no, he was inhaling something that was bad. You know, you show the particle size, you show that it doesn't smell like something, you show it's not going to make your eyes burn or whatever. Um, and so I was curious for, for those slides, is that something that you all have sort of throughout cases worked on and know what works or what they, re they remember and what resonates with juries? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I think that these, these cases, Jim talked about the historical aspects of what was known and knowable back through the past hundred plus years. Uh, the other major portion is the scientific issues and how the disease is caused, you know, down to, you know, we have molecular biologists that testify. 
uh, occupational medicine doctors, pathologists that you know talk about diagnosing and proving that it actually is a mesothelioma as opposed to a lung cancer. So it gets so granular and scientific that eventually it has to be explained to a jury in a way that they can clearly get. And the insidious effect of asbestos, one of the reasons why it's so dangerous is that guys like Pietro, it doesn't make their skin itch. It doesn't smell rancid or dangerous. You can't even really see it unless it's in millions and millions of fibers. So simple things like that and to explain complex issues to a jury is vital. What? Uh, one issue I noticed in there that it must have been one of the defenses, but the the differences in the types of asbestos and I guess what which asbestos can cause mesothelioma. And it sounded like one of the defendants was claiming that they didn't have the uh, is it chrysolite or the the right type of asbestos or something like that. Right. So uh, yeah. a common defense in these cases is uh, that chrysotile asbestos, which was by far the most commercially used form of asbestos uh, in the U.S. uh, was not the bad type of asbestos. In other words, there are multiple types of different minerals that asbestos really is. Uh, Some are more potent than others. And the chrysotile type, uh, everyone claimed, and they brought in their their expert medical doctor to to say this, just uh, you could be exposed to it. um, You know, and their industrial hygienist said this too, you know, in, in, in quantities that Pietro described for years and years, and you're still not going to see uh, a mesothelioma produced because it's the special, safe, happy asbestos fiber. Um, but all the literature, all the actual, uh, the regulatory agencies, the medical agencies, WHO, all, you know, everyone recognizes that even chrysotile causes the disease. So it's as simple as basically crossing these experts with the, the published literature that's been yeah. around for decades. But that that's the aspect of it and 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 what we went after in this case is you know it's it's anecdotally known that the that while chrysotile might be the most commonly used commercially none of them had any proof that that's what they used on these boilers so while we typically let them you know we fight we meet them on their grounds and say yeah chrysotile causes mesothelioma too in this case, we said, you know, there's so many defenses coming up. We're going to try to neutralize this chrysotile defense before it begins. And we looked through their exhibits and we didn't find any affirmative proof that they did, say, use chrysotile only. So we wouldn't let them make that chrysotile defense because they had no foundation for it. Right. <clears throat> um, well, let's talk a little bit about, um, about the damages and... Um, you know, and, and one thing I wanted to ask, uh, you know, is is how did you present what Pietro uh, had to go through? Is obviously uh, very horrific, and and uh, terrible. And then and then how did you come about asking for? Well, and I don't know if you asked for uh, in a, a specific amount, or did you uh, do a, a per diem type argument, or, or how did you present the damages uh, part of the case? Well, in New York, we're, we're not allowed to give a per diem argument. What we can do is give a suggestion based on what the evidence shows. And, you know, we make very clear that it's only a suggestion that could be accepted, rejected, or modified, depending on how the jury perceives the evidence. But in, in, in attacking this portion of the case, which was far and away, you know, 
as plaintiff's lawyers, we're in the unfortunate uh, position of uh, putting on cases for clients who, um, unfortunately, a lot of them don't see their day in court because this is a fatal disease. The evidence about Pietro is so compelling from a damages perspective. I, you know, I've, I've done a number of these cases and his damages were just off the wall. We, we put out, you know, not only through his own words and his video deposition of what he was going through, which was incredibly moving and powerful. Uh, we had a day in the life video just kind of tracking his day, day to day. And the jury got to see uh, with their own eyes how much weight this gentleman had lost through his treatment and, and, and the chemo. We had uh, his girlfriend um, talk about what she observed. We had um, his ex-wife uh, come in to talk about his role with their kids. Um, what we didn't want to do was put the children on the stand. Although they were there for certain portions of the trial, we, we really shielded them from the, 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 the most difficult parts of, of the evidence. Um, so their relationship with their dad came in through these other witnesses. Well, and, and I'm sorry, how old were uh, uh, Jacks, Jackson and Nora Grace? Were they at nine? The time of the Dan, they, were, they were pretty young. Okay. Yeah, they were, they were not. They were through the, through the lifetime of the case. I think they went from eight to 11. Okay. Very, very young. Yeah. Yeah, and the pictures, uh, just the pictures I saw in, in the PowerPoint slides were very striking, how different he looked towards the end of his, of his life. It was very... Yeah, I mean, just from the time that I first met him until the time I took his pain and suffering video, and he died a few weeks later, uh, it, 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 it took my breath away. He was yeah. such a great guy, just sit and listen to rock and roll while he was, you know, taking his treatment. And we talked right. about music. He's just a terrific guy that went through hell and wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I did, you know, just say, going back to this credibility point, uh, I, I, when I was looking through your your opening presentation of his injuries, <clears throat> you know, I, I couldn't help but notice that right in the in the meds, you know, you you pointed out the fact that he was not a smoker, which I'm sure is always an issue in these cases if the client is a is a lifelong smoker and and then you know, the cancers. Uh, but you also put in right there that he did smoke marijuana from time to time, uh, you know, sort of hitting that issue that the defense was making a point of head on and just saying, yeah, I mean, you know, he, one, he's using his, you know, he's in California and he, he smoked marijuana. And, but, you know, I, I think it's the best way to handle issues like that is just uh, put it right in front of the jury and let them know you're not hiding anything from them. Well, yeah, uh, we, we thought that it was, completely irrelevant. Um, and again, it was one of those discussions that we had. Do we make the, do we let the defendant blunder into this and use it against them or not? Um, and it came up in jury selection a lot um, to the point that, again, going, keeping them at zero instead of having to score points back with it. We decided to bring in the medical marijuana card uh, that he had and show it to the judge and camera to preclude the defendants from making that statement. And so if, even though it was kind of out there and discussed, um, they, they, the judge eventually just kind of laid it down and said, you can't bring that up anymore, um, which I think nerved to a benefit. What was the jury during uh, voir dire? How was the jury reacting to the issue of, of marijuana use? I mean, it's a New York jury. They were, they were indifferent to it. I mean, right. We, we kind of say that if somebody is going to have a visceral reaction that we could actually notice to 
you know, marijuana use, they're probably not going to be the greatest jurors for us in the first place. Uh, so it, it, it was kind of a non-issue. I think a larger issue was the defendant's efforts to bring out his failure to make some child support payments after this guy left his job and left his life on the East Coast to be out with his kids. He had not yet gotten a very good job and then he got cal- and then he got mesothelioma and he, at that point he couldn't work. So he couldn't yeah. make his child support payments. And they were trying to kind of reverse the order to show that he was not the great dad that the witnesses said that he was. And so that and also became- that he wasn't, I remember they, they tried to use that to show that he wasn't a, a rule follower such right. that he would right. have obeyed any warnings on these boilers anyway, which was a very interesting defense that I'm not yeah. sure it would have worked out even if it had come in. But that was how they were trying to backdoor this credibility issue into it. Right. But in, and I thought you said earlier that his ex-wife did come testify. Yes. Uh, okay. So, I mean, the, the, you know, this argument of him not being a good dad, the fact that his ex-wife is there testifying on his behalf sort of suggests otherwise. Yeah, it spoke volumes. Um, well, speaking of jury selection, it must have gone pretty well for y'all because uh, you mentioned early, early in the episode that um, maybe you had another defendant that resolved during that uh, resolved the case during jury selection. Is that right? Yeah. So there was a fourth boiler company uh, that resolved during jury selection uh, named Kohler Co. Uh, that actually um, that they actually ceased manufacturing boilers in 1958, um, which still jives with our, uh, with, with Pietro's testimony because he was ripping out such old boilers, but, uh, they resolved during jury selection. And I mean, I can't remember what the jury thought, um, but it seemed like they started seeing that, you know, there were defendants that, 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 that believed Pietro, um, and that, and that, took us to, and, and, and the lawyer for Kohler was such a, you know, he's an excellent, excellent lawyer and was such a, he appeared so honest and trustworthy for him to have quite obviously settled during the, during jury selection. It, it sent a message to the jury before we even opened. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've heard stories of picking juries in New York City uh, before, but is it is, with the asbestos litigation, is it the same where you're, you don't have a judge there and uh, everybody's just talking to everybody, even in the hallway sometimes? <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know about in the hallway, but there was a lot of talking going on. The right. Jury selection in this case took it, I want to say, what is it, two to three weeks at least? Wait, yeah, I think it was three weeks for jury selection? Oh, yeah. In, yeah. In, wow. And this isn't so much the case anymore. There have been... Um, certain new uh, procedures put into place to try to speed things up. But the way it was at the time is you basically can do your jury selection in two phases, the hardship phase where you're talking to 60 people just to see if they can even sit uh, for the length of the time of the jury that takes well over a week to two weeks. And then once you get down to your actual panel where you're digging into the issues, you can take two to three days to, dig into everything and get everyone talking and then the defendants go and then you have a chance to go and there's rehab along the way. So by the, by the time you get that jury, you know them very, very well. And in our case, really? yeah. I, I remember thinking, this jury is great for us, you know, but you always wonder the defendants must be thinking the same thing right. because they're sticking it out. So, but and, and- I really liked them. So when you have, when you're doing all this, I, I know I've asked this before, but when you're, when you're doing all this, uh, none of it's being taken down, right? 
It can if any party requests it. Okay. okay. It's very rare that people do, though. And then, uh, and then how do you handle strikes for cause? You, you basically just go to the judge and argue those? Yeah, the judge, uh, you, try to, you, you try to agree, um, and you frequently do. And then once you're done, once you can't agree, you'll bring it to the judge, kind of what typically happens. Every judge does it differently, but both sides will say their piece as to why it is or is not a challenge for cause. And then the judge will probably meet with the juror individually to find out. And how many appeals in New York happen because of jury selection? Not, not many, I assume, but. There's a few, um, and there's enough that the case law on certain issues of equivocal answers, that type of thing can kind of break out each way. Uh, not a lot get there though. Most of the, most of the, uh, precedent comes out of criminal court, uh, which is taken down, uh, because liberty is at stake. Um, so it, that, that can be, that can be helpful. You know, when we talk about criminal court, I always laugh because, you know, we talk about three week jury selections that go on. I had 15 minutes in vehicular homicides. Oh yeah. Then, and so you still learn to move fast, even though it takes three weeks. Well, yeah, I mean, depending on the judge you're in front of in federal court down here, I mean, usually the judge will ask maybe, you know, 20 minutes of questions and then might give you five minutes to, uh, to follow up on that. But, uh, you know, so, but I mean, state, state court here is uh, a lot more, um, uh, liberal, I guess that way that uh, a judge, it's, it's much more to the judge's discretion that they can give you much more leeway. And, and really, it's each individual judge on how they handle it in, in Georgia. Excellent. Yeah, the, fir- the first case I ever tried with our firm, it was in Georgia State Court, and it was we had a jury by lunch. And I like had no idea how yeah. much longer it could take. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the longest I've ever gone on jury selection was three days. Uh, and you know, I had the judge was so upset with both sides at that point because we had taken so long to pick the jury in that case. Uh, you know, and then it was a big, it was a big, you know, big product liability case. So it, it needed some time. But uh, well, if it were like that for Dan and my uh, trials, you could cut our opening slides down by at least 200 slides. <laughs> right. Using Claudier to put everything together nice and casually. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, well, guys, this has been, uh, been really great. Is there anything uh, that we haven't talked about about the uh, Macaluso case that you wanted to make sure our listeners have heard? Um, the one thing I'll say is, you know, jury, or trying cases is extremely stressful. There's a lot on the line. You're representing a client. In the case of Macaluso, where things were happening in real time that really would have affected the outcome of the case. There's also, I think it's important to remember as a trial lawyer, not to forget to have some fun. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> as much as we love, uh, you know, the stress of it, I think Dan and I also had a, a good time with this trial because we could attack these defenses and it wasn't completely stressful. We could actually be creative and, uh, and argue off, you know, and kind of play off each other. And I think it, the jury actually, really liked that dynamic of having the two of us, you know, being full tilt on fire the entire time and not looking like, you know, we were getting beat up every day. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like a fun one. I would have liked to be on this jury. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, we should do a show sometimes about what the, what lawyers do to, you know, inject a little bit of uh, fun into their trials. Because one one of the things that that we do from time to time is we'll pick a word uh, and then we'll see how many times we can just work it into the trial. Like, <laughs> I'll, I'll give an example. What this uh, this one defense lawyer one time in a medical malpractice case kept using he'd use the word duodenal bulb. <laughs> and so, so we we decided we were going to you know work on how many times we could work duodenal bulb into uh into the trial and and I remember at one point I'm cross examining this uh this expert and I kept asking him about the duodenal bulb and I look over at my partner and he can't even put his head up because he's laughing so hard <laughs> at council table. Um, Maybe but, not uh, as fun for the jury, but fun for you guys. Yeah, yeah exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well. Um, it, this has been great. I want to uh, remind everybody that we've been talking to Dan Bluen and Jim Kramer uh, with the Simmons Hanley Conroy firm in New York City. Uh, and you can look them up at SimmonsFirm.com. The case that we've been talking about is uh, Pietro Macaluso versus A.O. Smith Corps, uh, Burnham LLC, Peerless Industries LLC. And it was a uh, result of a $60 million verdict on behalf of their clients and, uh, and just a great result. And uh, Dan and Jim, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. It was great, yeah. great to be here. And Thanks please, so much. Stay healthy. Please stay safe. Yeah, stay safe. Uh, you know, up, you guys are right in the center of it. So um, stay healthy. All right, thanks. Back to home school. Yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Have fun with that. <laughs> thanks, yeah. guys. All right. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.